We trust that you are lenting well. Um, this is a season when uh, we sort of lean a little more into the darkness side of what our faith is about. The story that uh, we're part of on this planet has an upside and a downside to it. I mean, the upside is that God has filled this world with lots of wonderful gifts. And uh, we know that he willingly intersects with us, brings his life to us, and his kingdom, his influence, his love, his redeeming nature comes to bear in our lives. Many of us have tasted of that. That's why we're here. The downside is that we're still in a world that is not all that God has imagined and not all that it will be. Uh, one that's filled with more ugliness and injustice and uh, turmoil than it should have. Paul, writing about this present age, he says, the long game with God is that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So he recognizes there's decay here. And he says, the whole creation has been groaning. It's a great term thought, groaning. The whole creation's groaning as in the pains of childbirth, which is the groaning for something new, right? Uh, right up to this present time, Paul says. So though there is this hope of something new inherent in our cosmos, where we know that God will eventually put all wrongs to right, um, there's this deep groaning in the created order. Uh, over the evil that is present here and the chaos that is here. In the incarnation story of God coming to humanity in Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus enters this upsy-downsy kind of uh, space of the human experience and he feels the groan that is present here, the pain that's here. And in our story from the gospel this morning is a story about the death of, of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And we find Jesus crying. The text says in John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Um, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, and yet it 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 speaks at length to us. The Creator wept. This means that the incarnation wasn't just about God entering our context as a 911 first responder to fix all that hurts us or to stop all the groaning that pervades the space in which we live and occupy. It turns out that the incarnation is a larger story than just being or showing God just showing up as the fixer. And it's about God really fully tasting what it is to be human what it is to be broken, what it is to have pain. Um, it was about him becoming us. It's, it's true that there's a fix in the incarnation, this idea of fixing. Um, while on this planet, Jesus did fix things. In fact, in our story, he ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. There was a fix that was there. And uh, there will be a day when the te text tells us that every tear will be wiped away that uh, from our eyes that death will be no more, that mourning will have ceased, crying and pain will have gone. That's the promise that we have of a future world. But in the here and now, uh, not every loss is stopped. 
In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about his presence in the world and he talks about hunger and nakedness, that when he's present in those contexts, that they're often eliminated with food and clothing. But then as he talks about it, uh, some other aspects, he says, he talks about imprisonment and sickness and how he's present with those that are in that. And they're met in the text with visitation and care, not with a fix. So we know about the presence of God in the world today sometimes fixes things and sometimes just brings help in the midst of those who suffer. Fixes don't always come. And uh, some losses won't be fixed until the end of days. Jesus wept, irrespective of the fact that he was going to fix what was happening there. He, he still wept, and he wept because we weep. And we weep because loss is real. Jesus faced suffering head on. He tasted and experienced it. If you remember the text from the Beatitudes where Jesus is talking about who the blessed person is, the person who's on, who really is a description of the person who, is, who has the evidence that God is present in his life. And he makes the statement, which seems absurd. You're blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, who enter into the taste of pain. Because that's where comfort comes from. They'll be comforted. Mourning. The Jewish tradition, when someone passes, they sit shiva. They just sit in the darkness of loss. But there's something about that that's critical for a healthy human life. Um, I'm not good at this. I'm, uh, I, I, uh, there's a diagnostic tool that's used in spiritual formation uh, that's been used for centuries. It's called the Enneagram. And it's a personality kind of type test. And what's nice about it is it doesn't just talk about, you know, talk about what you're like if you're a particular number in terms of uh, when you're healthy. It also talks when you're unhealthy. The evidence is what is very, help, very helpful. Um, I am a seven in the Enneagram. <laughs> what that means is seven, people like me, there's not much room for pain or grief. Um, tragedy strikes and I'm ready to talk fix. Or let's go buy a new couch. Just let things sort out. Right? The last thing sevens want to do is process disappointment or pain or loss. We're kind of deniers. And, you know, we're the ones that say, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. But this is, uh, I think, a little bit typical, not just of sevens, but of a culture like we have a modern culture, that the modern person doesn't want to mourn. We want solutions. We want to fix things. And we want to move directly to prayer and worship and claim victory. But what if that's wrong? Many believers, especially those of us that have been raised in a theology of triumph, um, we rush so quickly to the concept of redemption, the concept of victory, that we avoid feeling how bad things really are. We don't weep. We don't weep. Um, the highest attended church service in the Christian calendar for most churches as a whole, the churches as a whole, is Easter. Celebration of resurrection. The least attended service in the Christian calendar, 
church-wide is a good Friday. See, we, we so run to Easter and the hope of everything changing and the new life that we deny in some ways that there even was a Golgotha, a death on the cross. That's one of the reasons we so love Tenebrae service. It just ends in darkness and depression. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and what ends up happening is we don't have any handles for facing loss. We don't have any, any things we can grab and say, what do we do with this? And so we end up, so we sort of view loss as evidence of a lack of faith. And that lack of faith should probably be silenced. I mean, you don't want to talk about it. Don't utter it. But the scriptures, they, they carry all of this evidence that, that claims that we should embrace and that we should mourn over our experience of the bad. That, that we need to enter the pain of human loss and, and experience the injustice and to actually give the injustice voice in prayer. Jesus models that in our text today. Giving voice to pain is, is actually technically in theology called uh, lament or complaint prayers. And it's a, it's a kind of prayer modeled again and again in sacred text. Here's a classic example. This is out of Psalm 44, and the psalmist prays, Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Think of the accusation of this. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why are you hiding your face? Why do you forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Help us. There's this cry for help, but it's preceded by this tasting and this uttering of pain. Here's another one. This is Psalm 42 and verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? Here's another, Job 10. God is, Job is talking to God. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. He's bracing it. Most of us don't dare to do this because it's too raw. It's too real. And we think God wants us to pretend everything is good. That, that we think that he's always right. He's always good. And he is always good. Any prayer that seems to assign blame to God, though, is a really scary prayer for us. But really, it's a kind of prayer that requires a high level of intimacy and a high level of faith, like the intimacy of a married couple who know each other so well that they dare to say after a disappointment, why didn't you do what you said you would do? I mean, I'm just so angry with you right now. Why can we say that? Because we're that close to it, be able to say that. These are honest, open, dangerous words. Walter Brueggemann, who does such brilliant work in this area, wrote, quote, in the pervasive practice of the church, in liturgical prayer and in personal devotion, lament prayers have nearly disappeared from the horizon of faith 
which is an immensely important development. Likely they remain unused because A, they are too raw, candid, and abrasive for nice Christians. And B, they are too robust in hope for modern people who do not expect a God who actually hears and acts. The toning down of a prayer to less demanding form constitutes a loss of realism, candor, and robustness in much of our praying, end quote. This is one of the main reasons I love to pray the Psalms in the daily office, those of you that are participating with us in that. The Psalms, with few exceptions, are not really the voice of God addressing us. That's why when they're read in liturgical communities, uh, after a psalm is read, you don't hear the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, because they're not really quite that. They are the word of God, but they're, they're really the voice of our common humanity. Voices of faithful God followers who have cried out over the millennia, and we have record of them. They speak about life the way it really is. And we pray them, we, and when we pray them, we pray them in solidarity with uh, th those who have both experienced the anguish and the joy of the human experience. And we add our voice to what we experience as, as it, when we have this common elation, you know, times when, when things are just going great. And, but we also add our voice in shared grief and, and when we have this kind of communal rage when things don't go right at all. And we know injustice is winning. Walter Brueggemann again claims that the Psalms show a pattern of life and a pattern of faith that's shared by all of us. He, he says that we share times when our faith seems so securely oriented. And, and, but then there's times when we feel that that secure orientation has been displaced by painful disorientation. Something has happened that brings us into the land of the suck. Then there are times after that that we are surprisingly reoriented after being painfully disoriented, and the cycle goes around. Let me just parse that out just a bit. I mean, there, there are seasons when our life and our faith seems really securely oriented, where we know what we believe, we're, we're trusting in God, our lives are well settled. Um, we know that life makes sense and God is well-placed in heaven, right? And he's presiding over us. It's beautiful. Uh, it's like we're living out of the ancient book of Proverbs, right? That when you read the book of Proverbs, it sort of affirms that life is equitable and symmetrical and well-proportioned, right? The book of Proverbs. And we are in a situation of equilibrium. It's a beautiful thing. Spiritually, we're at least middle class. <laughs> but life in this world doesn't afford us the luxury of uh, staying securely oriented. And if you live just a little bit longer, life often slaps you right up against the head or hits you hard in the gut. And life becomes painfully disoriented. It can be over a situation that's horrific, like a loss of a marriage or an unexpected bad diagnosis from a doctor or the loss of a job or the loss of someone you love to death or a financial reverse. Or it could be over 
things that seem little, but they're still as devastatingly disorienting, like a sharp criticism or a disappointing email or some drama at work or just general disappointment over something that you were hoping to be true, but the hope goes, goes unrealized. Or maybe a moment when you really are honest and you think, I'm really lonely, I'm lonely. And you have this sense of betrayal or a sense of rejection or a sense that you just simply feel like no one really knows you or loves you. Or you may find yourself being thrown into disorientation over, you know, sort of the disturbances that occur in public space. Some have a deep anxiety over global warming or others, you know, social kinds of pain points like the tragedy of racism or the plight of refugees or name it, name it, name it, right? The troubles of our world. Where you, where you have a fear of terrorism or a terrorism or a sense that the world is falling apart. All of these kinds of experiences, they, 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 they're palpable, disorienting things where after we look at them, we can't help but wonder, where is God? Where are you? Why is this? And, and even if you can get beyond your own fear and grief, you don't have to look very far to find the hurt and the terror of others, whether the others are your own friends or just the people that you see in the media. Every one of us knows the reality of chaos and disorder and the disorientating kind of things that happen in the world that surrounds us. The Psalms do something with this disorientation that's not normal. Because what it does is it allows us to take the ache, the anxiety, the pain, and to bring it to the Lord. You know that old uh, hymn when I was a kid, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. You know? And then part of the hymn goes, oh, what needless pain we bear because we do not carry things to God in prayer. I mean, the reality is the Psalms help us bring our pain to God. How? Through this notion of lament, through this notion of complaint from our heart to God about issues we see. The most famous one is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the one Jesus recalls when he's on the cross, when everything was against him. The psalm lets you say the pain you feel. Psalm 88 is the toughest one, the toughest lament psalm, because it ends in unresolved gloom. <laughs> Most of them don't, but this one out of Psalm 88, 15, from my youth I have suffered and have been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's how it ends. Praise the Lord. <laughs> But here's the deal. If you will dare to lament, 
And if you give things time, not try to just move to fix, you'll eventually be surprised by the reorienting work of God in your soul. Most of the lament psalms end in this surprising work where God has shown the psalmist a reorientation to the goodness of God and the hope of the promise to engage with our world, that he will engage with our world. But they still begin by expressing, you know, they start with this expression of the secure, maybe naive orientation that all is well, and then the psalm as it's praying goes, bam! It, it, it shows how life enters this horror space and, and that, that, that something ungood is happening, that God looks unfaithful. And when this happens, we see modeled in the Psalms that there's prayers that speak of this pain in such beautiful, honest, freeing ways, as opposed to using speech and conduct that covers up the pain that we feel and what's going on. See, because if we're not careful, when we get wounded by life, we just ignore it. We try to be these little good soldiers, right? We just stay positive. We had our platitudes like, I know God will turn it into good. Things will work out. It'll be okay. Lamenting is not the most natural thing for us, for most of us. Where I first saw this in my spiritual life was this Catholic nun, Sister Joseph Marie, wonderful lady. This is when I was still, just had got, I was still in college, just gotten out of high school back in the 70s, 73, probably 74. And I was working with her with these Catholic charismatic kids, right? And we were doing uh, Bible studies and that sort of thing. And one day I was sitting with her. We were doing some planning for the meeting that was coming up that week and, and talking about what we're going to talk about and et cetera. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Ed, she said, I had a hard morning. I said, really? She said, yeah, I, got, I just got so mad at God. <laughs> Which I kind of went, really? <laughs> I mean, are you saying that to me? I mean, I just, there was no space in my spirituality to ever say I was mad at God, right? And she says, you know, she's a Catholic nun. She says, you know, I'm married to him. <laughs> but she said, and I said, okay. <laughs> I said, what did you do? She said, well, I, he just hasn't been treating me like a woman. I said, Yeah. <laughs> She says, well, I took my Bible today and I threw it against the wall. And I said, why are, why are you going to treat me like a woman? And in my mind, I was thinking, and you lived to talk about this. <laughs> it was just no space in me for this kind of honesty. And somehow she said, and he met me. Now, when I was, listen, not only was I a little shocked that she was saying this, I was actually wishing inside that I had that kind of faith. Like I dare to be honest. Think of most of your friends, most of you, even the closest of friends, you can't be totally honest with because you're afraid they'd reject you if you told them what you felt about something or about something they were doing. It takes lots of intimacy and guts, courage, trust to be honest. For the normal and the conventional people around us, the raw edges of disorientation are denied 
or they're suppressed so that we carry a faith that's neat and tidy and that can be sort of sustained as neat and tidy for the public's kind of view and their equilibrium. When life hits the fan, you know, we, we look, we, we feel like we're supposed to look unshakable. In most arenas where believers gather, think about this, we are expected, if not required, to speak the language of safe orientation and equilibrium. We must parrot, it is well with my soul, or pretend it so. In truth, when surprising divine reorientation happens, it really is well with our soul. But it isn't well with your soul until it is well with your soul. As a result, we have this need to look good or to sound good or to protect the children or the weak faith. What would they think if they thought I was struggling? That's why so many pastors say, be like me, I'm perfect. And they're not perfect. They, they, they are as horrible at life as you are. I mean, I love it when I read Paul. He says, you know what? I'm kind of the chief of sinners. <laughs> but what happens when we do that, our speech is blunted. And it's dulled. And it becomes religiously safe. And mundane. And weak. When you say, it'll all work out. It's all good. God is so good. Well, he is so good. But he doesn't always look that way. We were singing today, and I, you know, you'll never let me down. God will never let me down. I listened to that, and I thought, you know, I, he's let me down a bunch. Not in the long run, he'll never let me down. So we can sing it that way. But if you're not careful, you'll think, he's not letting anybody else down except me, but I would never tell anybody. But this kind of bland blathering only quashes our passion for the good and dislodges our imaginations for God to break into our world. And the worst part is the Holy One is, is never addressed with the pain we hear. We just shut up, take it, and smile. And we don't take things to the Lord. But, but this, this is problematic. You can't really ignore stuff like this because it will come out of you in other ways. You will kick the cat. <laughs> or you will be snide and hateful to those you love. Or you'll be that kind of that passive-aggressive thing that goes on. Or, or, you, or you'll drive on the road and road rage. Yep, yep. It's going to come out of you. The Psalms allow you to pray appropriately when you're living on the edge of life. They cause you to be sensitive to the raw hurt that's in you and that the kind of primal passion that seethes at the bottom of your life when pain has swallowed you in. What's so sweet about the Psalms is that they're at odds with the kind of natural speech of most people. They don't contain normal speech that only speaks of all things being stable and wonderful and running smoothly. They, uh, 
announce that life is not like that at all. The Psalms announce that there's no cover-up. There's no sowing of fig leaves together to hide from God in the bushes about. And that the Psalms announce that our common experience is not one of well-being. It's not one of equilibrium. But, but our experience is really this kind of churning, disruptive, dislocating kind of thing that we get relocated and then we're disoriented and then we're reoriented. And it's like, whoa, buckle up, baby. Life is happening. These prayers are not religious in the sense that they're courteous or polite. They're, most of them, these complaint psalms, they wrestle with painful disorientation. They're the, they're the voice of those who say to the Holy One, we're as mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. That's what they're like. And yet, they're beautiful. Brueggemann says, quote, the complaint psalm for all of its preoccupation with the hard issue at hand invariably calls God by name and expects a response. In order to lament, you have to believe that God's okay with you being honest and that he will not reject you for it. That takes faith. Sally Brown, Patrick Miller, they wrote this, quote, Nearly all the lament prayers in Scripture move from some expression of confidence or assurance of being heard. The complaint without trust is not the lament. The complaint itself is an act of trust. End quote. So what if God wants us to face him and to ask him, why are you sleeping over this? Why did you forsake us? When will things ever change, Lord? Most of us have never well, have been let down by God before. And most of us have never given that voice. You have a miscarriage. You didn't get the job you wanted. We just skip over it. It'll be fine. I think it's much easier to long for simple fixes than enter weeping. But what if entering weeping is what the healthy option is? Lament recognizes that our soul needs to mourn before it can embrace answers God has. Lament means that saints must give voice to their grief. We must taste the pain of endings before we can ever lean into the hope of new beginnings. Brueggemann again, quote, Jesus, he's talking about when Jesus wept. Jesus sees that the only time those who mourn, Jesus sees the only, that only those who mourn will be comforted. Only those who embrace the reality of death will receive the new life. Implicit in his statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted and those who do not face the endings will not receive the newness. I used to think it curious that when having to quote scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say, Jesus wept. It is usually done as a gimmick to avoid having to quote a longer passage. But now, I understand the depth of that verse. Jesus knew what we numb ones must learn again. A, that weeping must be real because endings are real. And B, that weeping permits... Newness. 
His weeping permits the kingdom to come. Such weeping is a fearful dismantling because it means the end of all machismo. Weeping is something kings rarely do without losing their thrones, yet the loss of thrones is precisely what is called for. End quote. If we don't learn how to enter the horror of our pain, we just go on. Our faith words, our encouragements are nothing more than numbing painkillers, like handfuls of oxycodone pills. It'll be fine, brother. God is good. It'll be all right. Just move on. Non-lamenters eventually just end up numb in their faith. We shouldn't try to anesthetize our pain. We should enter it fully. This doesn't sound fun, but this is a lot of what Lent's supposed to be about. We should embrace it. We should feel its ravaging. We should lean into its unfairness, its cruelty, its bitterness, and then open up to God about it, the God who's willing to weep with us. Not just 911 us. How long do we do this? I don't know. Till it's done? The really good news is that when we lament, we begin this road that takes us to this surprising move from painful disorientation to new orientation. Somehow, we come to know that we will survive this loss. Not vis-a-vis denial, but honesty. Somehow, we come to the place where we're confident that God will act. And bring a fix, but it isn't even about that. It's, it, 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 it's, not, it's just that we are in this with God and he's in it with us. Now, this movement to this confidence is just not automatic. I, I don't think we can simply presume it, but we can be confident that in the chaos, that chaos doesn't conquer us if we trust there's, there's always this hovering of the spirit over our lives, even when our lives are like that Genesis 1 where it says the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The spirit was still there and the spirit's still over us when our lives are that way. So the Psalms offer us language of celebration and thanksgiving when honest lament has run its course. Even in that text, that famous text, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at how it ends. Verse 22, but I will declare your name to my people in the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, and he has listened to his cry for help. So these Psalms take us into the depth of pain. Why have you forsaken me? And then it takes us out on the other end saying, God feels what we feel, and he comes to us. When we emerge on the other end of lament, it isn't a return to the old kind of Pollyannish form or return to sort of some pseudo-normalcy, you know, that as though nothing had happened. It's really a place, a space where all things are new and all things are new kind of thing. And when that happens, it's always a surprise. And it always feels like a gift of graciousness. And we always experience it in a way that evokes gratitude. So what I'm saying to you this morning is, maybe you were hoping that life would be like a Disney movie, right? Where Every morning, birds sing you awake, and little bunnies help you sweep the floors, and the chipmunks wash the dishes, right? It's just so sweet. It's, it's obviously disorienting 
when you face the fact that most days you're really in a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> there are birds, all right. But they're out to nibble on your flesh and gouge out your eyes. Our text said Jesus didn't avoid that. He entered it. It said Jesus wept. It's okay to. It's okay to say, why, Lord? Why did this happen? Why didn't you prevent it from happening? When will it change? Will it ever change? I thought this would have changed by now. Jesus wept. It's okay to cry. It's okay to ask why. It's okay to hurt. It's okay. Our text says it all. Jesus wept. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.